0: Welcome to a Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to Redemption'sHill.com. Before we start, um, I want to, again, give a shout out to just all of our, our volunteers. Uh, with, with TJ and Allie being on vacation, so excited for them to be able to get away and rest and hope that God just really replenishes them. But... Uh, it, it's pretty clear this morning, the things that we throw on our volunteers, these guys on the band that are learning new songs, songs they never heard before, they learn them this morning, and they're able to lead us so well into worship, and our poor projector folks who are inputting those new songs in the computer as we speak right now, I uh, just really appreciate uh, everyone's service to um, the body, and it, and it um it matters. It, it matters a lot. So as much as we talk about needing those things, it, it, it truly is the the people behind the scenes um, really, really help. So I'm grateful for you this morning. Let's not even mention our kids' workers downstairs with all those screaming kids while I'm rattling on. So I better get going. Um, hey, welcome. My name is Garrett Richards. Uh, I am an elder here at Redemption's Hill. Uh, I'm so excited. I've been here the whole 10 years. So, I'm super excited to, to celebrate and, and party this October. Um, but I'm I'm excited to be able to be here this morning, uh, to bring the word, um, excited that, that pastor TJ is able to, to get away and excited to be one of the voices, uh, that he's been mentioned as we've heard, we hear different, uh, voices from the, the pulpit. I'm just so honored and excited to be one of those this morning. So we're going to go ahead and just dive right in to the word this morning. So, um. We're going to continue this morning through our series on Nehemiah that we are calling The Rebuild, right? Um, that's what we've called. And if you haven't been with us, um, that, that name or that title sort of re- refers to the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, this calling and mission that God placed on the heart of Nehemiah um, to go and rebuild the wall that has been destroyed as well as rebuild the community and the people of Judah. So throughout the story so far, throughout the first five chapters, we have seen Nehemiah really cling to prayer and obedience to God while being old, bold to, to take action when the opportunity presents himself, right? And I'm, I'm so excited about the work that's been doing in us as we've heard and we've been pressing into prayer and, and, and really seeking out what our calling is and looking for those opportunities to take action. We've also seen Nehemiah really hold his ground in the face of immense opposition, okay? God placed this calling and this mission on Nehemiah's heart, and the devil doesn't want to just let that go, right? So we've seen him face hardship and difficulties and attacks of the enemy. The villains would, uh, so to say, of Nehemiah's story have tried numerous tactics up to this point to derail the plan, to throw off the mission, to throw Nehemiah off of this calling that the Lord has placed on his heart. They've threatened him. They've lied about him, made up stories about him, but Nehemiah has, up to this point, resolved to cling to God, right? He has had the steadfastness to continue to be obedient to his mission and his calling and to walk that out. So in today's text, what we're going to see or start to see is Nehemiah's enemies are going to be getting more desperate in their their attempts, in their attacks on him to throw off the will and the plan of God. And the reason that they are getting more desperate is because the wall is done, right? The wall is done. So the enemy is going to change his tactics a bit, and he's going to try to first manipulate Nehemiah, And when that doesn't work, then the enemy is going to try to intimidate him in an effort to stop the work of God. So let's just jump right in this morning. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to be covering the entire chapter today, um, but we're going to to read a bit. We'll break. We'll read a bit, and then we'll we'll unpack that. So let's start with Nehemiah 6. We'll start with verse 1 and read through verse 4. Now, when Sanballat... And Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakaphrim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop when I leave it and come down to you? In verse 4, And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Let's pray one more time. God, we're just so gracious for your word. We're just so grateful for your love and your mercy, God, that you send us instructions, God, that your word never fails, that there is power in it that there is teaching in it, that you send your spirit to us to hear it and transform my clumsy words, God, into life-changing truth. So, Lord, we just want to cling to you this morning. God, would you just be here and have your will through this word. God, may we honor the text and honor you, and may we respond in worship. We glorify your mighty and holy name. Amen. Amen. So, the wall is, is done, right? It's near completion. All that's left to this point is got to put up some doors, right? Sounds like the gates are up, just got to put some doors in those, and the entire wall has been rebuilt. And at this point, or up to this point, despite all of their attempts, Nehemiah's enemies have failed to stop or even really slow any progress on the wall, right? Right? They didn't like it from the start, and they've tried all these different things, but the wall, the work has continued. They've not been able to hinder it a bit. And by now, these enemies, these men would have realized that Nehemiah had not just come to build a wall, right? He hadn't just come. Nehemiah is not just some um, skilled leader and and gatherer of people. He is that, but there's more. They would have um, begun to understand that Nehemiah was also determined to establish the community within those walls, right? God had raised up an influential spiritual leader. So the threat for these men is is getting bigger. Not only is the wall there, but the people are going to get strong. So Sanballat and his boys, right, they try something different, sort of a last-ditch effort, to eliminate Nehemiah himself. They can't stop the work on the wall because it's done. So they go after Nehemiah. If they could eliminate the leader, right, maybe before he can strengthen and establish the people, perhaps they could derail all of his efforts to revitalize Jerusalem, which is the calling and the mission that God has placed on his heart. So the first way they do that is they really use a tactic called Manipulation, right? They pretend to play nice, is where we start this morning, right? The wall is done. So I imagine it goes something like this Nehemiah, dude, you really did it. You know, I got to give it to you. I know we gave you a hard time early on. We didn't, you know, we made it hard for you, but you did it. You got the wall done. It's pretty impressive. Got to admit, it's pretty impressive. You're quite the powerful leader to accomplish something like that. And you know what? I can respect that. We can respect that. So let's do this. Let's gather together. Let's meet like maybe halfway. Let's say, oh, maybe the plane of Ano, right? Let's meet there. I think that's about halfway. We'll meet there and let's, let's just get together, right? We're also like-minded men of, of power and leadership and vision like you, so let's, let's get together where we can celebrate this great thing that you've done, this success, and maybe we'll talk about our mutual goals, right, how we can work this together. That's how I envision or hear this going. And, and it just, it calls to me or it really spoke to me in just how subtle the devil is and his different attacks and his attempts to throw off or slow down the progress of the work of God, right? Now, obviously, they were lying, Right? They don't want to celebrate. They don't want to do, uh, they don't want to celebrate his success or talk about their mutual goals. But what Nehemiah's enemies are trying to do here is to appeal to his sense of accomplishment. This is a pretty big deal, right? They just rebuilt the wall. And after all, that had to feel pretty good, don't you think? I'm the type, when I mow my grass, I make my wife come out and look at the grass. I'm like, babe, you need to come look at our grass. Come look at how good. Our grass licks, right? You guys are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. You know? I'm like, look at, look at what I've done. Look at this yard, right? If I do that, Nehemiah just rebuilt the wall in like 52 days. Miles of, of wall. So that had to feel, you had to feel good about that. So the enemy is really trying to appeal to Nehemiah's sense of pride, his sense of accomplishment, which is a super. Super crafty move. It's so smart of the enemy because these, the way we're wired, our nature, the, the, those compliments, right, any acclaim, when you pair that with accomplishment, recognition of, of power, those things really together become this intoxicating temptation to pride because it feels good to do good, right? When you do a good job at work or in school and people are telling you, Man, you really, it just feels good. So the enemy can use that as a temptation. And just as strong would be the temptation for Nehemiah to want others to see him as reasonable, just like we would, right? To see for others to see them as reasonable as opposed to stubborn or hard headed or difficult. The temptation would be to go along so that we could get along with others, right? Most of us, as believers, we want to be seen as peaceable, as reasonable, right? We don't want to be jerks. And as believers, we should want that. That's a great, that's a great thing. But this can become a problem when our desire to be seen a certain way, peaceable or reasonable or to go along is maybe so that we can benefit from our, it ourselves, Or gain the respect of others with little to no concern for what is right before God and his calling. If we do that, right? If we're not careful, that can quickly turn to compromise and to pride. And it puts us in danger of disobedience to our calling, right? Disobedience to our calling. So what Nehemiah's enemy was trying to do... um, is really similar to what happened to one of Martin Luther's heroes, a man by the name of John Huss. While I was studying this story, it just, really, uh, just really spoke to me. So I wanted to share it. In early 1400s, John Huss became a preacher in one of Europe's largest cities. And over time in his ministry, Huss started to realize that the Bible was the sole authority for believers. The sole authority was the scriptures, and his conviction became more solidified when Pope John at that time authorized the selling of indulgences in order to finance a campaign against one of his rivals. Upon seeing that, Hus began preaching that Christ alone is the head of the church, and he began preaching that the pope is just a man and can make mistakes. And that to refuse to submit to such a pope, doing things like Pope John was doing, is actually the will of Christ. So as you can imagine, that caused a stir within the church. Remember, this is Martin Luther's hero, so this is before Luther pinned on the the doors of the church. So in November of 1414, the Holy Roman Emperor urged John Hus to come to the Council of Constance to give account of this doctrine. Come tell us what this is all about. Tell us what's leading you to this. Give account for these things that you're saying. And because the, the emperor at that time had promised Hus safety, he said, you'll be safe. And because the council had the potential of bringing substantial church reforms, Hus decided to go. He decided to go. And When he arrived... He was immediately arrested. And he began being harassed in an attempt to denounce his beliefs. And when he realized what was going to happen, this is what he said He said, I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hands, I plead my cause, not on the basis of false witness and erring counsels, but on truth. Injustice, And in July of 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake as a heretic. Burned at the stake as a heretic for saying that Christ alone is the head of the church. And while he was burned, he recited from the Psalms. It's a powerful story, right? To have that kind of faith, to have that kind of obedience. So the enemy here in our story is subtly trying to use Nehemiah's pride to lure him out of the safety of the walls and the safety and security of brothers and sisters surrounding him that would be protecting him. And then once they can get him out, right, once he is vulnerable and isolated, the enemy will destroy him. Like a predator separating an animal from the herd where it can pounce and devour it. That was what the enemy was trying to do. And doesn't the enemy still work that way today? Right? The devil tries to manipulate us to forsake our calling as salt and light to the world through temptations that seem to be everywhere. Literally every corner, it feels like there is some temptation to take our eyes off of Christ and his calling and his will for our lives, whether it be our pride or distraction or greed or fear or selfishness. The enemy is constantly putting those things in front of us to distract us and lure us away. And once we are vulnerable, once we're feeling isolated, distant from the presence of God because we're not looking to Him, once we're feeling distant from community of believers, brothers and sisters who are willing to have hard conversations with us and say, hey, I think you might be walking a dangerous path right here, right? He lures us out from behind the walls where He can destroy us. Now, Nehemiah, doesn't fall for these temptations, right? He says, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah, again, shows his focus, right? Nehemiah is focused on what God put in his heart to do. He is confident and sure of the calling that God has on his life, and so because of that, he keeps himself away from the pride of this great accomplishment, He keeps himself away from falling into that trap. And he keeps himself away from dangerous attachments to men such as these that are trying to ensnare him. No matter how alluring they can present themselves to be, he knows and honors the will of God. His response to these men, to these calls, four times it says, so they're being persistent, right? His response is similar to the words of Paul to the church in Philippi. In Philippians 3, Paul says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I forget, those things don't matter. What happened behind me, good or bad, the great things I've done are nothing. I'm focused solely on the prize of Christ and his will, right? Or how about the words of Jesus in John 4, where he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Nehemiah humbly, right, humbly holds fast, to his obedience in Christ, though the enemy is trying to tempt him and manipulate him into falling in these traps by, by calling to his sense of accomplishment. Let's keep reading verse five. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to, to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, that there is a king in Judah. Now the king, this is Artaxerxes that he's talking about, will hear these reports. It's a threat. We're going to tell the king about these things, right? So now, come, let us take counsel together. So you better come talk to us, right? Let's hash this out. Verse 8, then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. So here, the enemy shifts to intimidation, right? To, to trying to instill fear to get the reaction that the enemy wants. The enemy sends this open letter to Nehemiah, accusing him of an insurrection against King Artaxerxes, which, remember, King Artaxerxes already gave Nehemiah permission to go build the wall. So at this point, he is in the favor of King Artaxerxes, but he's saying, I'm going to send a letter to the king saying, word on the street is you're not just building a wall, but you're going you're gonna to rebel. Now that this is done, you're going to rebel against the king, and you're going to make yourself king of these people. And you've already got prophets in place to say and proclaim you as the king. Now, again, these are, of course, lies. But these are really serious accusations against Nehemiah. And the reason is because of Judah has a history of rebellion. They've done this very thing. This exact tactic, actually, this strategy, has worked for Sanballat in the past. If you look back in Ezra, when Ezra was trying to do this, Sanballat did this. He sent a letter to King Artaxerxes, and the king believed it and shut it down. Okay, So Judah has done exactly what the enemy is accusing Nehemiah of planning to do. Because the enemy knows that the best lies come from as near the truth as possible, right? The more believable that we can make the lie, the more people will believe it. This is the work of the devil. And and to be honest, the devil gives us this education for free, right? We know how to craft a good lie, most of us. You ever heard a kid... You ever heard a kid just like give some ridiculous, outrageous lie or story, right, early on? I don't know. I was just sitting here and a bird flew through the window and knocked that picture off the wall and broke it. I, Right? It doesn't take long for us or for them to figure out, right, the closer to the truth, the more believable we can make the lie, the more people will Believe it. So, this attack on Nehemiah really takes advantage of an important psychological principle, and it's a really sad one. But this is the principle that it leans on people are quick to believe the worst about others. Isn't that sad? People are quick to believe the worst. About others. And I would say, and I would argue, that this is possibly more prevalent in our day, in our culture, than any time in history, right? You can blame it on social media, and it probably is, but today more than ever, I would argue that the guilty, or that the accused are guilty until proven innocent, right? But even then, when you're accused, can you ever fully prove your innocence? think about these accusations and the people that would have heard that those accusations nehemiah would never have had the opportunity to to squash that with each person that heard those accusations our culture is really consumed with this idea right now right and we've talked about it you've heard about it talked about from the from the pulpit whether it be culture cancel culture or what i believe it's keller calls outrage porn right these are the things that are fed directly from this principle The people are quick to believe the worst about others. And the enemy uses that to try to intimidate Nehemiah. Thank goodness that we serve a God who the Bible says is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Right? Thank God that our Lord is not quick to believe the worst about us that he knows the worst about us and chooses to love us anyway and that is why in the redemption's hill in our membership those of you that are that are thinking about coming and talking this is why we often talk and ask in there that as family that we strive to believe the best in one another right we're all flawed we're sin, sinful We're going to let each other down. We're going to wrong each other at some point. Somebody in your MC is going to hurt your feelings or you think they're going to be a bad friend. I've done those things, right? But we're going to strive to believe the best, that we are going to fight against the schemes of the evil one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy and would love to see the work of God hindered by accusations and intimidation and by us believing the worst about one another. So Nehemiah responds, and he he simply says, none of those things are true. None of those things are true. He understands that the enemy is trying to frighten him, but he is not intimidated. Instead, he leans further into God and his obedience because he is sure of the will and the calling on his life, and he goes right to prayer, right? He stands and says, you guys are lying, None of those things are true. I'm not afraid of you. Oh God, please strengthen my hand. Right? He leans in to God and he prays, Oh God, strengthen my hands. And this, this is the response that every believer should have when the devil tries to frighten us from obediently serving the Lord. This should be our response that we are so grounded in the word, that we know the truth, that we are so sure of our calling and our standing before Christ that we would say, I am not afraid. I am not intimidated. And God, strengthen my hand. And may God grant us the discernment to know or identify the works of the devil against us and his mission or calling on our lives. Because it can be scary at times, right? But what if I lose my job? What if they won't be my friend anymore? What if by taking this stand, I end up looking like the stereotype that culture places on believers right now, right? When the enemy is intimidating us and trying to make us afraid, we're to trust in the Lord and his plan, and we should pray. Trust and pray. Nehemiah prays. For the will of the Lord and for the strengthening of his hand. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Verse 11. But I said, should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could even go in the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Verse 14 Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Right? We see the devil continuing to try to intimidate, to tempt Nehemiah out of fear to disobey God in order to save his life. The devil tries to make him fear for his life and get a reaction that would be displeasing or disobedient to God. Shemaiah uh, was a spiritual leader of the people, possibly a priest with access to the temple. And he would have been someone that Nehemiah trusted. And we know this because Nehemiah went to his home, right? Nehemiah went to his home. And Shemiah says, Nehemiah, they're going to kill you tonight, right? Come, We got to get you to safety. Come with me to the temple where we can keep you safe. It's a good trick, right? It's a good temptation to create fear in Nehemiah and tempt him to do a couple things. One, to show himself a coward by hiding, right? Two, to disobey God, to save himself. And the third temptation, that's, that's not as clear, but it's so, we, we need to hear today, the temptation would be there for Nehemiah to lose faith in God because of losing faith in his friends and other spiritual leaders, right? This is somebody who is pretending to care about him, who really is been bought and paid for by the enemy and wants to see his destruction. It would be easy to lose faith because of that. Now, the law prohibited Nehemiah from entering the temple. Had he gone in to hide, had, he, had this created the fear in him, fear of his life, that he would have gone into the temple, would have been a good hiding spot, right? Had he gone in, he would have been guilty of a, a capital offense And his enemies would have then had the legal grounds to destroy them. There's no more plotting. It's just the law. They would have got their way. But God, in his mercy, shows Nehemiah the true intention of Shemaiah and gives him the wisdom and the courage to remain obedient to God's laws and not fall into this trap. We are again shown where Nehemiah places his trust Right? He is so sure of his calling. He is so grounded in prayer, in scripture, and knowing what the Lord commands, that his trust and his faith is in God alone, not in men, not in women, not in friends, not in other leaders, people who can and will fail us, but his trust and his hope and his obedience is to a God who never fails. So let's finish the text. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ere, and his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Nehemiah's trust In the Lord, his unwavering, unflinching obedience to God has paid off, and the people of Jerusalem have finished the wall in just 52 days. And this was such a feat that the word says that Nehemiah's enemies were humbled, and they were afraid. It said they fell greatly in their own eyes. Remember, these are men that are filled with pride, right? They're thinking... What they have done, what they have accomplished is great. And to see this work and know that it is only because of the favor of God has brought them down. The Lord, through Nehemiah's obedience and the, and the work of the people, has humbled his enemies. Now, there are really three reasons that this work was accomplished, this amazing feat. The first is that Nehemiah was committed to, and focused to the glory of God and the removal of the reproach that had come on the people of God. He was focused first on the glory of God in establishing God's people. The second reason is that Nehemiah prayerfully and actively trusted in the Lord to give him and the people success in doing the work. Faith and trust involved. And the third is that the people of God joined together. Cooperatively, there was action, and they enthusiastically rebuilt the wall. In the face of great opposition from many enemies, God is working at multiple levels through his people. And the will and the calling that he placed on Nehemiah is done. Sanballat and Geshem and all the Nehemiah's enemies in this story They're really just pawns in a much greater battle, right? It's not really about them, and it's not really about Nehemiah. The war is raging on a much higher scale since Genesis 3, since the fall of man, the the devil is the real, true enemy. He's the one pulling the strings. He's the one laying the traps. To cause as much collateral damage as possible in a war that he cannot win, The devil cannot win, but because he cannot win does not mean that he cannot hurt you. And he will use the same tactics that we see here in Scripture against us today. And we know this because he's used many of these temptations other places in the Bible, specifically against against Jesus, right? So quickly, I'm going to wrap up quickly. Matthew 4. If you're making notes, just just write write it down. You know this story, likely. But Matthew 4 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God Jesus was hungry and the enemy tempts him to eat right tempts him to feed his flesh verse 5 then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him if you are the son of God throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone the enemy's so crafty, the devil is actually using Scripture to tempt Jesus. In verse seven, Jesus said to him, "Again, it is written, "You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test." Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, "All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All these riches." All this wealth, all this accumulation, I'll give it to you. Just worship me. Verse 10, then Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil tempts Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry, and Jesus knew the word of God, and he had the steadfastness after fasting and praying for 40 days, folks. Right? When I was growing up, I always thought that the enemy came at after 40 days because that's when Jesus was weak. Right? And he was hungry, but after 40 days of fasting and prayer, Jesus was strong. Forty days of prayer and connecting to the will of the Father He's able to stand against, to be steadfast against the advance of the enemy and his temptation. If the devil believes that his temptations are good enough to use against the Son of God, you can bet that he's not afraid to use those against you and me, right? So while you and I are likely not building walls around a city, we do, if we have put our faith in Christ, right? If we're here today and we're believers, we have our own mission, and our own calling. And you can bet that the devil stands in opposition of that calling. He wants to see you fail. So while the tools that he uses today might be different, right, the tactics are likely the same. He tempts us. He tempts us to materialism, to get stuff, to make more, to have more. TJ's message last week, right, really spoke into that. He tempts us to believe the lies that we tell ourselves that we are in control, right? That our accomplishments, that the great things that we've done are are our own, that we've done those in our own power, and it creates this self-dependence that leads to pride, and it leads to isolation, right? This is a real... this. This is what the devil does to me, right? In my own pride and arrogance, he, he he speaks to me and says, Well, you can do that. Just knuckle down, right? Focus down. You can fix this. Instead of being dependent on God, and it pulls me farther away from him and farther into myself, which is not where I need to be. And he tempts us to ignore God altogether through temptations one and two, right? Materialism, self-dependence. Who needs God? Get more. Do it yourself. But the tools that helped our biblical heroes, right, like Nehemiah and Paul and Jesus, are accessible for us today, right? The enemy may use some different tools. God gives us the same ones that worked then and they'll work now. The first is faith, right? He gives us faith that all we have to do is believe in him, faith that life comes through our conquering King and that no enemy shall prevail, right? If we believe that, if we have that faith, whom then shall I fear? The second tool is the word of God, right? And before you roll your eyes that I just told you the Bible is the answer, right? That seems like the, the easy answer. Just remember that Jesus literally quoted scripture to the devil in the midst of temptation, Right? For some reason, the devil has worked in our hearts and we say, like, just read your Bible more. like That just feels like, no, it feels like there is power in here. If it's good enough for Jesus in the midst of temptation, it's good enough for us. Mike Tyson, I'm going to go from Jesus to Mike Tyson. (laughs) Mike Tyson says, every fighter has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? I don't know why that came to me, but I was thinking about the attacks of the enemy and and what will we turn to when the devil and life punches us in the mouth? Right? Will we scramble? Will we turn inward? We would be wise to turn to God to turn to the Word. And the third is prayer. Right? The third tool. There's more than that, but community, people, brothers and sisters. Right? But prayer. We saw Nehemiah boldly stand in the face of his enemies in his schemes. We saw him stand firm and steadfast, but we also saw him pray. We saw him pray in the midst. We see Jesus boldly stand in the face of the enemy's schemes after 40 days of fasting and prayer. It's been so encouraging for me to hear and see some of the stories coming out of Redemption's Hill through this series and what God is doing in us, hearing about people and MCs really joining together to, to deepen our prayer lives. Right, that, that some are fasting and there's more praying happening and we're holding one another up in prayer and God in his faithfulness and his mercy is answering prayers. It's so exciting. in Our own MC, things that we've been praying for, we're seeing God answer those. God's favor is being poured out on his people and I truly believe that he is stirring his people to take courage, to take action, and to walk out our callings and to have great faith to trust. So as we wrap up, I want to leave you with this band. You guys can come back up. I want to leave you with Psalm 2. And it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's where it gets good, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at their schemes. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of, your er- of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We serve the conquering king. In him, we can put our faith and have our trust. Life can be hard and the battle can be scary and the enemy's tactics are good ones. But ultimately, the enemies of the Lord can never prevail. And the Lord Jesus Christ will terrify them and put an end to their foolish striving once and for all. So I would encourage you this morning, as the Lord is speaking to us through through the word, and as we're rebuilding, right, that we stand strong against the attacks of the enemy, that we would have courage and that we would have faith. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in the midst of the battle, God, that we can have faith in you and know that victory is certain. God, we repent of our unbelief. Would you help strengthen Our faith, Lord. Would you give us the boldness and the steadfastness to walk out the callings that you have, that you are stirring in us and awakening us to, Lord. God, that you would receive glory. Not that that we would would be able to boast or brag or take pride in our accomplishments, Lord, but that we could lay those things at your feet and say, God, you did this. God, you saved my friend. You saved my brother. You saved saved my family. You changed my neighborhood. You healed my marriage. You healed my sickness, God. Because you are good and you love us, Lord, and we glorify your name. Lord, I pray that we would just worship you this morning. We would glorify you for you are mighty and worthy of praise. We love you. We praise your name. Amen. As the band leads us in in worship this morning, we're going to take communion. Those are on the table, you can take that anytime here through worship. We open that up. Uh, you don't have to be a member here to take communion, but we would ask that you would be a believer in Jesus, that your faith would be in him. And if you're not, that's okay. It doesn't really taste good, so just leave it, right? And if your faith is not in him yet, man, we'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to talk to you after the service come and find me and and we'll talk, okay? But if you do take, all we ask is that you be serious about your faith in the Lord. And the word says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, we thank you for the table, which we glorified this morning.